welcome to another episode of Global.Science. I'm Lev Horodisky. I'm Fabio Battistuzzi. And today we're going to be talking about the different kinds of colleges that we have, colleges and universities we have in the U.S. Um, so, Fabia, did you ever learn about the different kinds of colleges and universities that there are in the U.S.? No, I never had this opportunity. Uh, coming from um, an international setting, I was coming from Italy, I was... Uh, even at the beginning, very confused by the different words, college and university, because I thought they were the same thing. Um, so I never actually learned all the differences, um, but I, I, I've since then learned that there are many different shades to get the education, the higher education that students want. Yeah, it's quite curious. I had to take a class in graduate school that was, I think it was literally called Careers in Geoscience. And it taught us the basics of what is an interview and uh, how do you write a CV, which you'd think be basic knowledge, but it turns out it was a lot of assumed, assumed knowledge that got passed on from students who are about to graduate or that have graduated to, to students who have not yet graduated. And that was kind of the first time I was exposed to at least at least four tiers of universities and colleges in the U.S. There was the R1 uh, Institute, the, the Research One. Are, are there other R's or is it just the R1? Yep. No, there are R2 and R3 institutions. And usually from what I learned, they are categorized this way um, based on the uh, amount of research that they do and the amount of research money that they pull into, into their system. Okay. Yeah. So we only learned about the R1s, I guess, because we were at an R1 institute. That was like the only one that counted. Uh, so, and then there was the liberal arts college, which I was told was basically the rigor of the research rigor of an R1 university combined with the rigor of a really good teaching university. So it was like the worst of both worlds. And then there were or the, the best. <laughs> or the best, that's right. Um, then there were the primarily undergraduate institutes. And then there were the community colleges. Um, and since then, I've, I've learned in the last few years that there are also um, tribal colleges and historically black colleges and universities that sometimes fit within under these labels, but not always. Um, so our guest today is uh, Dr. Aubrey Adams. She is an associate professor in the Department of Geology at Colgate University. Uh, welcome to the show today. Hello, thank you very much for having me. So can you tell us a little bit more about the university? Which category does your university fit into? Because I think that's why we were interested in talking with you because you fit in a category uh, that we haven't talked to before. Yeah, so I think we kind of fit into a couple categories as you define them. So I would say first, we are a liberal arts uh, college um, because we do do a heavy focus on teaching, uh, but we also do quite a bit of research. So for those who are interested in this, when we go up for tenure, teaching and research are fairly evenly weighted with just a slight smidge towards teaching. Um, but we're also a primarily undergraduate institution as well, which most liberal arts schools are. So um, we have about just shy of 3000 students and almost all of them are undergraduate students, but we do have one program that offers a master's degree, a master's in teaching. They graduate, I think, anywhere from two to five students a year. And so because there are a few students graduating with master's, we get the tag university, even though we're 
primarily an undergraduate institution. So typically you'll hear people talk about liberal arts colleges, but we are one of the few perhaps liberal arts universities. So Fabio, does that alleviate your confusion about colleges and universities? <laughs> yes, it does help a lot. <laughs> Although there is another level of complexity that any type of university, well, not any type, but there are many universities that have colleges within them, like mine has the College of Arts and Science, and we value the liberal arts education. So it's like having a college inside a university. It's like a Russian doll. <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't want any clarity on these titles or anything. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be ridiculous. Not now, actually, I think I'm more confused. Um, so I'm not sure that helped. Um, so where is Colgate uh, University located? Because I think prior to visiting it a few years ago when you invited me out, I'd never heard of it. Yeah, it is in, um, we're kind of located in the middle of nowhere. We are in upstate New York, but also close to the Finger Lakes region. So we are about an hour southeast of Syracuse is our closest big town. And if you're familiar with the area, you might also know Utica, which is kind of a medium-sized city, which is about 50 minutes north. Um, so we are in the village because New York does have villages. We're in the village of Hamilton. Um, but I should note that the village of Hamilton is not in the county of Hamilton, which is several hours north, nor are we the same thing as Hamilton College, which is another liberal arts college that is located in another town about an hour away from here. So we're, we're in the village of Hamilton, but our name is Colgate University and we're kind of located in the middle of a bunch of farmland. This is going yeah. to be the most confusing podcast ever. You, you obviously cannot there. see our video, but we are all laughing while Aubrey is explaining all this because it <laughs> sounds extremely complicated. <laughs> the long and short of it is that we're located in a very, very small village and the population of the village when the students aren't absent is about the same as the number of students that we have. So we are, we're pretty physically isolated here. So how do you think this location of your university impacts the student population that, uh, that you have? Yeah, it's been a really interesting thing to observe. And I, you know, I think as with most things, there are some positives and there are some negatives. Um, I guess I'll start first with student life and how it affects student life and maybe a little bit of faculty life. Um, and then also how I think that ends up leading to the kinds of students who select to come here. So um, while students are here, you know, I think some of the positives are that because we're very isolated, it can give them this sense of being in a bubble and especially in COVID times that has been kind of a very literal sort of bubble and very isolated from the rest of the world. Um, but it also makes it a very um, college centric town, um, which is, you know, maybe common for larger schools like Penn State, where all of us went for grad school, but is less common for smaller colleges because they just have a smaller population. But here in the small village, we have a bigger impact. And so Hamilton, the village we're in, is a college village, which is a little, I think, unusual for a liberal arts school. Um, I think also being um, in this rural area means that a lot of our students 
either because they come here and this is what is available or because they've self-selected for this area, have or develop a big interest in outdoor activities. So we have a really strong kind of outdoor education program and students get involved in, you know, camping and hiking, but also weird things like ice waterfall climbing. I had a student who was into that once, you know, of all things. And so that, that's kind of cool. Some of the downsides are it is a college-centric town, which means that Thursday night through Sunday nights are a little bit wild and crazy if you are in the two blocks that count as our downtown. Um, it also, I think, can be a little bit isolating, especially for students or faculty who have come from larger towns. Um, they don't have, you know, the resources they were used to as a faculty member. Like, I can't just, like, we don't have a Walmart here, for example, so like or a Target or anything of that nature. So we can't just pop out and get, you know, um, things that we want. And that applies for students, too. But it also applies for other things to do. We, we do have a small movie theater, but it only shows, you know, a couple of, of movies. Um, there's no mall here. There's um, no like, I don't know what do the youngins do these days? There's no arcades or I don't know it's any TikTok, of the other. Sorts isn't of it TikTok? Um, well, there is TikTok. Yeah, no, you don't have to be in a big town for that, unfortunately. Um, but um, so I think that that kind of it creates this kind of interesting bubble for better and for worse. And I, I do think that a lot of times that is a consideration when students are coming here. I, I've personally known people of my generation who considered going to Colgate when they were students and actually decided not to because they were used to living in an urban environment and didn't feel that they could be comfortable for four years in, in a more rural environment. Does that kind of setting uh, have an impact on how you teach and you approach learning? Because I know um, I was working in the University of the Virgin Islands working remotely and something I had to really take into account when I was working with my students who were trying to do labs over Zoom was I can't create a lab that they can do at home that assumes any kind of equipment. So I basically, well, I had to dig through my garbage and then I made my students dig through the garbage as well to do physics experiments. Uh, does that limit what you can do with the research and teaching in that kind of setting? Oh, wow. You're, you're way more creative than I, than I am. Um, you know, actually, I, I, I don't think it's a big limit in that way. I think part of the way, part of the things that could limit teaching, particularly the past couple of years when we've been partially remote is internet connectivity. And I will say in general, in this area, it is not as good as it is in a big city, but because our students live on campus almost universally, we are a residential college. If the university has, um, has internet, they have internet. So that's, that's one, one issue. In terms of supplies, um, I guess it just requires planning ahead. So I, you know, I can't pop out and, and get supplies the, the day before, or two days before, but if I plan ahead, I can drive to, you know, the big town Syracuse or uh, order things on the ever-present Amazon and have them delivered here. Um, so I think in that way, it probably hasn't affected teaching. You know, I think one of the ways it does affect teaching is wanting to take advantage of the rural nature of the area. So in non-COVID times, we often have a lot of field trips to the surrounding areas. So like 
day trips or even just like driving 30 minutes away or um, making use of some of the resources we have on or off campus. We have a quarry on campus of all things. And so we take students there sometimes. So, you know, in that sort of way, yeah, it does affect planning. That sounds actually like an excellent opportunity and then advantage for a university to be surrounded, especially in your field, the geosciences, obviously the outside world is what you study. And so you kind of need to be able to access it. So that's that's good. Um, do you see any, uh, or do you have any thoughts on how um, your student population being a bit particular in terms of where they come from and the fact that they spend so many years uh, in an isolated place, perceive the concepts that you are teaching, especially science, uh, has a local versus global kind of endeavor because they are in a very local focused community? Yeah, that's a, a really great question. Um, I think it would be easy perhaps for there to be a very local focus in our student population. But I think that our students, as they come in, they come in with actually a really strong sense of um, duty, I suppose. Um, many of our students are very, very interested in the applicability of whatever they're studying to um, to communities, and that includes both our, our local community as well as the global community as well. And um, I don't think I've, it, it may be a, a factor of time, and this changes with time, or it could be a factor of location, I'm not sure which, but I've never worked with a student body that has had quite that intensive a desire uh, to connect um, the science they're learning with the impact it has on the communities. So um, I know that for many classes that that's also an advantage that a lot of um, the classes do tie um, um, class projects and things like that to the local community or areas around us. It's a little bit harder for me because my focus is tectonics and seismology, and there's not a whole lot happening tectonically or earthquake wise here in central New York. Um, but I do have one class where we uh, use geophysical techniques to image the subsurface, and that does have some local applicability. And so we've done things like try and figure out the depth of bedrock for building projects around here. And we're trying to connect with a local art park that believes that they have somewhere on their facility and the ruins of an old building, and we're going to try and help them find it. So. Oh, excellent. How does teaching at uh, Colgate differ from other places? Because I know we've uh, discussed uh, some of the projects that Science Voices is developing that's kind of uh, aimed at mass scale uh, education. And I know you were a bit ambivalent about those because that's just not the approach that Colgate takes or emphasizes. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really very different. And it's been kind of a learning process for me because my background is I, I went to a large state school. I went to the University of Florida for my undergraduate and for my, my graduate degree, I was at Penn State. And then I did a postdoc at Washington University in St. Louis, which is a private school, but a really big one. So coming to Colgate has been really different. And, you know, I think you hit on it that, um, the, the goal and the ideal of education here at Colgate, and I think at most liberal arts institutions, is more the idea of an individualized or near individualized education. So their classes tend to be um, smaller. Um, 
it varies. I have taught, taught a, I have taught quote, large classes, but my, you know, really huge classes are 65 students as compared to, you know, several hundred at, at, at some schools. But most of our classes are under 20. So I'm teaching two classes this next semester. One is uh, 12 students and one is, I think, 16. And so with the smaller classes, we're able to maybe not offer true individualized education, but a lot more time for one-on-one -on -one interaction. Um, I, I was spending some time before I met with you all thinking about some of the things that have surprised me as I've been teaching. And one of the things that has surprised me that I think is possible in this environment and less possible in larger classes is the degree of of, of mind reading that I, that I do while I'm teaching. So, you know, I, as I'm teaching in these small classes, I am looking out over my audience and I'm talking and I usually know my students. They've usually been in classes with me before and I can see their faces very clearly. And so when they are confused, I usually know it and I will like stop class and I will say, Joe Smith, you have a question. And like 95% of the time they will say, yes, I do. And they'll tell me what it is. And the other 5% is sometimes a little bit embarrassing because it usually means they've been thinking about something else. But um, <laughs> most of the time, you know, I'm able to make that kind of connection with them. Um, and so that I think has some, I think the, the benefits for students in that way can be kind of clear, but I think it also has some really interesting benefits for me as an instructor, because sometimes we go on these like really interesting tangents that are entirely led by a question that a student had. And because we have fewer students, we have the freedom to do that simply because we have enough time. You know, if I had 40 students in a normal class and a student had some sort of like quote weird question. Well, I, I couldn't accommodate that for all my students. Um, I could go on about that, but I think that kind of encapsulates kind of the, the main idea there. And I think that the kind of um, also shows the power of a liberal arts education that is a sort of letting the students to a certain extent explore slightly different areas connected to what they are supposed to be learning, of course, but let them really find their own interest uh, through questions that they can ask and explore with the professor. So that's, it sounds like Colgate has found a very good way of doing it. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. There's there's a lot of more of that kind of student-led student learning or at least student-influenced learning, um, both in the classroom and then also even in the design of majors. One of the things I think I personally struggled with and still struggle with as an instructor who did not come from this environment is um, that there tends to be less um, rigidity in the classes that students should take for a particular major. So um, students, of course, there are some classes that are mandatory, but um, because the breadth of education and the student-led learning is really emphasized here, a lot of times students can take some very um, unusual paths in a major. And that leads to some really cool conversations, but it also leads to the, the idea that I can't go into a class and necessarily assume that a student in the 400 level class has taken X, Y, and Z courses. So I'm, I'm struggling with this now in my seismology course where I have some students who haven't taken calculus, which is like fundamental and I gotta find a way to make that work. <laughs> so, yeah. 
It's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, UVI, University of the Virgin Islands, where I was last year, um, especially in the physics program, we spent a lot of time discussing our students and the pathways they've taken. And, and we've, uh, in faculty meetings, we would even go to the extent of discussing uh, students' records and saying, should we offer this class in the summer one-on-one -on -one for the student to make this up? And it had this, uh, despite being, uh, I think, a, a public university, um, it, it had the feel of, uh, it had some of that feel of a small town environment where we cared about our students' success and took an individual interest in them to help them uh, guide them through the program. And I yeah. think it's quite um, interesting to see that students, even though they may not express this, I think they perceive the fact that a university or a college is focused on them and allows them to design their own path and they appreciate that. So it's, uh, it, it seems to be um, successful um, structure for, for universities to follow. So you've done some work in Africa. Um, so how does that figure into what you do in a small town environment where some of these students, I don't know, do they have an opportunity to travel overseas a lot or does that allow you to bring in uh, some of that uh, perspective to a place that, and to students who normally wouldn't be able to have that, those kinds of opportunities? Uh, yes and yes. Um, so I, I, a lot of my research has historically and, and continues to be based in, in Africa. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, a lot of that does get brought into the classroom. Um, I think that when students, even geology students who are used to working outdoors, when they think about working as a scientist, they tend to imagine working as a scientist, A, usually in a lab, even though we're in a geology department, and B, usually they imagine it in the United States. And so if you present them with um, examples of science being done in an entirely different environment from what they imagine, I think that in and of itself is kind of a, a place where they can grow. And so I think even things as simple as sharing sort of some of the things that I have done in the field, why we went to the field to do these locations. And I think also sharing, sharing the idea that you can do science work and there can be things that are fun about the science work that are not actually explicitly about the science. I love doing field work and I love doing field work because I actually love the actual part of it. I don't love digging, which is a lot of our field work, but the You're rest of it, you know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I enjoy playing in the dirt, but not the digging. Um, but, um, I enjoy the challenges of setting up our electronics in, you know, in some odd locations. So I enjoy that part of it. And of course, I enjoy the questions we're answering, but I also really enjoy the opportunity to travel somewhere while I'm doing science and meeting with people who live there. And I think that's a really kind of like important perk of doing science. And I think that's something that a lot of students have asked me about that they never imagined that, that could be a part of a science career. And so I, I am happy to share that with them. Um, I'm also, I also have the opportunity to take some students with me to do field work too. Um, you know, I think that's something that can happen at at any institution, but I think at a smaller institution, simply because there are fewer students, they're more likely to have that opportunity. 
So um, I've taken a student with me to install a seismometer in Tanzania, and she's told me that that was a, a life-changing experience. Um, and that was, you know, there's some challenges, I think, with taking students um, to uh, do field work in, in, in international environments. And we can talk about that if we have time, but I think it's a really valuable experience. I've also taken a bunch of students with me to do field work in um, in Alaska and offshore in Alaska, which although that's not international, the areas that we were going were very, very rural. They don't have roads to them, things like that. We had fly in and, and, and so it has in, in a lot of ways, many of the same kinds of challenges of taking students really outside of their comfort zones and to places that are very different than what they're accustomed to which I think is a really important personal growth, which is part of what we, we value in the liberal arts education. I, I completely agree because I think a lot of students, when they start, they have an idea of what their, you know, their career is going to be like after they enter their major. I know that for us in biology, usually they enter with the idea of, I'm going to be a doctor, not necessarily because they want to be a doctor. Some of them do, but some of them is just that they think that that's the only thing they can do with a bio degree. And so showing them how varied are the opportunities that they may have is, is extremely valuable to them. And it's fun for us, the faculty, because we get to see our research through the eyes of younger and more inexperienced individuals. And we get to experience the, the excitement that they have. Yeah. Before they learn the truth. Well, yes, but we don't tell them that part. Uh, there are many Not truths, until they're yeah. in too deep. <laughs> All right. So what are some of the biggest challenges that you've had with taking students into the field? Yeah, um, I think there have been, you know, I, I, I think I can think of two. And one is um, kind of the expectations. Like a lot of times students, I, I, okay, let me start over here. So whenever I'm going to take a student to a field, I talk to them before we go about what are your expectations? And sometimes they're very open about this and sometimes they aren't. And sometimes I think they genuinely don't have any expectations. They have no idea what to expect. And so I think there's a little bit of being a counselor to this. Like I can't take a student to the field and just be a scientist. I also have to be their counselor because I am responsible for them. And so, you know, throughout having a student in the field, I, I spend a lot of time checking in with them, you know, like, okay, so how are you doing both physically? Because sometimes we're in environments where there can be some physical challenges in terms of heat, physical exertion, um, lack of access to, you know, medical facilities, things like that. But also how are you doing mentally? Um, how, you know, have you seen anything today that gave you pause? And a lot of times they have, you know, because they're seeing things that are very different from what they are accustomed to and they want to talk about it. And that's, that's fine. Cause I can talk about it. Cause usually I've had very similar experiences or, you know, similar resolute uh, revelations about what it means to be human. You know, these kinds of things that are not really actually related to seismology. Um, the other thing that I think is a little bit of a challenge is that sometimes when that happens, students react really differently. And, you know, there are, there's a very small percentage of students who kind of shut down and 
this experience is not what they thought it would be. They really want to go home <laughs> and that can be, that can be challenging. Um, and unfortunately it's a really small percentage, but it's challenging because once you're there, it's you're, you're, you're there. And so, um, that's also a little bit of, I think, counseling as well, you know, talking about students, okay, what are you feeling? Um, you know, why is it that you uh, are, are ready to be done with this? You know, how can we make this work a little bit better? You're here. Are there things you still think you can get out of this, even though you're not loving it the way you thought you would? And, um, you know, that one's not quite as fun, but I think it's just as important. All right. Excellent. Thank you. Mom. That is, I think we're just about out of time, but I want to thank you for your time and your insights into working in this um, classroom environment that we haven't had a chance to discuss with people before. Thank you all. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right. So Fabia, what did you learn? I learned that uh, I think Every time somebody thinks about going into academia, they should be, um, they should have some training on how to be a counselor because I really resonate with Aubrey's comment about that because whether you are in the field or even, you know, through the pandemic with students switching between online and in-person and online and in-person and all the mess that was created by this situation, it's, it's tough. It's really tough. And a lot of times we are not necessarily fully prepared to help the students to the best, even though we want to. It's just that we don't have the knowledge and it's very stressful for them and for us. I would, I, I would agree with that. And that's something we discussed in our uh, faculty meetings at UVI that uh, for the students on St. Thomas, uh, is kind of a safe space for them to operate. But once they kind of got to the US mainland, they would be experiencing racism that they were not used to and maybe not prepared for. And I've had those conversations with some of my students, uh, even long after I've left UVI, where they've uh, contacted me to ask for help and support. Um, and it's something I wouldn't say I'm explicitly prepared for, uh, but something that I, I've learned to pick up along the way. And, and I agree that uh, some more training on uh, actually being a mentor and providing that support to students because they're dealing with a lot of issues, especially during the pandemic, would be, would be quite helpful. Yep. But it's also interesting to hear that there are students like the Colgate students that despite being in a very, you know, uh, tightly knit local community that have this desire to be involved with the world. And I think that is kind of reassuring for the future to know that there is a generation that is actually looking forward to connect with the world because good heavens, we know we need those kind of people. So it's good. <laughs> it's nice to see that not everyone has lost hope yet. Yes, exactly, exactly. Hold on to the enthusiasm of stu students. Eventually, the world will get better slowly, but it does get better. <laughs> yeah, but it requires the work of all of us. And I, th yeah. I think this generation of students is uh, well prepared for that uh, because I think we didn't really give them any choice. No, not really. I mean, the social media and a lot of, you know, experiences that they get, they throw them in the world, whether they like it or not. And so it's, uh, but, but instead of being scared, it seems like there is a good amount that are actually embracing it. And so that's, uh, that's, that's good. Yeah. And that's something I've been seeing uh, globally as well. And it's been, it's been a joy to work with this generation of students. So, well, 
I think that's a, a good place to end. So until next time, thank you for joining us. Thank you, and we look forward to seeing you at our next episode. This episode is Uplifting Indie Acoustic by Cube Sounds from pixabay.com. You can learn more about Aubrey Adams University at www.colgate.edu. Global.science is a production of Science Voices, a U.S. nonprofit organization. You can learn more about our mission to improve equity in digital science education and help support it at www.sciencevoices.org.